We're going to move into chapters three and four today. And what we find out as we do that, as it, Peter told us to get ready, we find out what we need to actually get ready for. Peter's quite specific on that. And what I want to do is I, I'm, I'm going to read quite a large chunk of 1 Peter. And it's going to start in 1 Peter 3 verse 8. If you've got a Bible, we're going to dive into it in a minute. I'm not going to read the whole thing through to 4.19, but I'm going to read most of it. Okay, so it's going to be kind of... 3, 3 verse 8 to 4, 19. Um, and I want to, and you can see in this passage, it'll be obvious to you, I think, um, what Peter could see coming around the corner for his readers that he was so keen to prepare them for. So let's, let's get going from here, reading from the NLT translation. Um, 1 Peter 3 verse 8. The words should be behind me, and they have. Great. Finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathise with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. For the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Christ suffered for our sins once for all. He, he never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. Jump forward to chapter 4, verse 1. So then... Since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. You've had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy, their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties, and their terrible worship of idols. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do, so they slander you. But remember that they will have to face God, who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead. Move forward to verse 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad. For these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed for the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble or prying into other people's affairs. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, 
What terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? And also, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to godless sinners? So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. Okay, can we just pray quickly before, before we go on? Just uh, give a moment you, for you to process what you've heard. That, that's, uh, that's quite some passage there. I'm going to spend some time un, unloading it, but I just wanted you to respond to what you've heard. Maybe verses of that struck out to you as we went along. I just tell God how you feel on the back of that. Is there any kind of nuggets of truth you want to grab hold of and say, thank you, Jesus, that really helps me. I might not preach on everything there, but just call out to God and say, thank you, Lord. If there's a, even a concern setting in, of like, okay, this theme seems reasonably heavy, give it to God. It says there, doesn't it? It says, give your cares and worries to God because he cares about you. Give them, to, give them to him now. It might be related to this, it might be related to other things. Holy Spirit, would you speak through your word as you have done for thousands of years and would you use it to change our lives so that we uh, reflect the, the uh, character of Jesus more to those around us? Amen. Amen. So I kind of, uh, I suppose, <laughs> I think it will be obvious. That's why we prayed what, what we're meant to pre- prepare for here. What is it? What are we preparing for? Suffering. Get ready to suffer. Now, I, I didn't really want to uh, put that in at the beginning. I wanted to break that in slowly. I thought if I'd started with today's message, get ready to suffer. Um, some of you may found an excuse to act like a child and go to kids work, potentially. Um, now, it's uh, still slightly off-putting to put it like that, but... I think when you hear Peter's heart in the passage, uh, you can see that the tone is not quite as doom and gloom as the theme might suggest. Yes, it's serious, obviously serious, but, but he talks about things like reward and he talks about some types of suffering that are actually better than other types of suffering. And he even has the total audacity to encourage his readers on the back of this. Yeah, you're going to suffer a lot. How, how should you respond? Be very glad. That is, it, it's the very that gets me there, really. Be glad is one thing. Be very glad. It's just pushing it over the edge. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time on, on that one. But um, hopefully, by listening to the passage, you can see that at, at the very least, though I'm imagining there'll be questions uh, for you, we're not like, oh, get ready to suffer. Oh, this is the worst thing. Get ready for the worst thing ever. I hope heaven comes sooner than what we were thinking of in the worship um, for this. Although we hope that that is the case as well. Um, so basically, I, I want to just spend the next half an hour uh, looking at what Peter says and going through it. And there's lots and lots of stuff here. And I'm going to be jumping around all over the place, really, into some bits we've, in other parts of the, the book even. Uh, but I basically just want to ask two really simple questions. And those questions are, uh, one, what kind of suffering is Peter talking about? What kind of suffering is Peter talking about? And two, how do we suffer well? We spend most of our time on the first. Just right at the end, how do we suffer well once we've understood that? Okay, so let's just dive straight in. What kind of suffering is Peter talking about? Well, the the letter is uh, talking specifically about one type of suffering. It's talking about suffering for being a Christian and for living as a Christian. And I just want to say this right at the front. 
at the top. It's not saying this is the this kind of suffering's up here, and well, all other kinds of suffering. Just get on with it. It's not saying that, okay? And I recognise for all of us here today, uh, we would be we'd have all sorts of types of suffering that we may well be living with in a very extreme way, even at the moment. You might be dealing with illness or grief or loss or other sorts of pain. And uh, those are really, really important things. In no way is Peter, uh, am I, or is the Holy Spirit through this passage trying to downplay your suffering. And I would really hope that what Peter's got to say today uh, would there be overlap to encourage you in your situation. But I think it's important to be clear right at the start that his focus is really specific. I guess the word we'd often use here is persecution. That is what um, that is what Peter's talking about, suffering for being a Christian and for living as a Christian. But what kind of suffering then does he mean? Because suffering can mean all sorts of different things, even in that specific way. What kind of suffering were Peter's readers going through? Well, it seems that uh, he has one quite... Uh, specific area of suffering in mind and that is to do with people speaking badly of of them that that seems to be the case so the words used uh, are that these are the things they're going through insults chapter 3 verse 9 threats in verse 14 he says when people speak against you in 3 verse 15 and slander slander when people lie about you to make you look bad basically in chapter 4 verse Four. And that seems to be the general tone of the suffering these guys are going through. Now, just to be really clear, the, the, right, the readers of 1 Peter were not being threatened at that time with martyrdom and imprisonment for their faith. They were being threatened with abuse and being socially shunned, as far as we can gather. Now, while that seems to be the main tone of the letter, though, there is this other thing rumbling beneath the surface that seems a little bit more extreme. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, the, the talk is of suffering physically for Christ. That's what it, it talks about. And um, in chapter 4, verse 12, a verse we'll look at in quite some detail, um, he talks about these fiery trials. And the fiery bit seems to be talking about something that seems a little bit worse than people just being mean to you. I, I think that would be uh, in the thinking uh, in the in the general picture of what's going on. So there are these kind of two layers of suffering that he's talking about here. I think this is absolutely fascinating to see this and then reflect on actually what we know of the experience of believers at that time in that part of the world. Because you see, a lot of the, in the second half of the first century, when the books of the New Testament were written, there were times of extreme, the most extreme persecution you could imagine. Okay, when we think of persecution, we often go to the kind of Revelation version of persecution. Revelation, uh, where that's written, it talks a lot about martyrdom and people dying for their faith. And for in many periods, in Rome particularly, at the end of the first century, um, that's what was happening in, in horrendous ways. Christians were losing their lives uh, and lots of other things uh, going on as well. It's really unpleasant. But we've got to realise, for those living on the outskirts of the empire, things develop much, much more slowly than that. And so this letter is written, it says at the beginning, to the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Uh, anyone know what country that's, that's in, those things? We've done this before. Turkey. I, I saw it's whenever Ed puts his hand up humbly in the back on a Bible question. You know, I'm going to ask someone else. You know, you know this stuff. Yeah. But Turkey was correct. Well done, Tim. Good, good job. You see, for Tim, he could say, I think I won't ask him for other reasons. No, no, just joking. <laughs> um, he, he got it spot on. This is North Turkey. Um, and 
really at this time, as far as we can gather, this letter's written either 60 or 80 AD, uh, and there was no state interference uh, with the church at all at that point, as far as we can gather. So when he's writing this letter, it's not the revelation situation. It's not the martyrdom situation. There's no state inter- <laughs> There's no... For the tape, and for Rich, he's going to have to edit this. There's no, uh, there's no state interference at all. But what's fascinating is God in his sovereignty and providence has kept for us historical details of what happened next for these exact people. And it's, there's a letter that you can, you can look on in, in the internet. You can see the whole letter. I think I translated some of this for my Latin uh, A-level, actually. And it's a letter dated either 30 or 50 years after this letter is written, to the, and it's from the, the, the governor of Bithynia. Bithynia, one of the places that Peter's writing exactly into. Okay? And the governor of Bithynia was a guy called Pliny, Pliny the Younger. And he wrote to the emperor at that time. We have the letter that he wrote. The emperor was Trajan. And he said this. He, he explained to the emperor, very off the cuff, oh, you know, I've been killing those Christians in Bithynia for the last 20 years. That's the, 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 the background to the letter. Oh, you know, I've been executing and torturing them for 20 years. I've got some questions about how we do it, essentially. That's the thing. So let's think this through. That is either... 30 or even 10 years after this letter is written. Yeah, yeah, at the time there was no state interference. Yeah, it was, it was abuse, it was insults, it was threats. But very, very quickly, things got a lot more ugly for these guys. Some of the guys who received uh, Peter's letter, who were saying, look, at the moment, people are being really, they're slandering me. What should I do about this? I'm being like ostracised in my work. Within 10 years, they were being hauled up before the governor who was saying, do you think that Jesus is Lord? And they knew that if they answered that yes, they would be killed. They would be executed. That's the same people, but it comes right around the corner. So I think it's, it's, incre- it's amazing and incredibly prophetic then, this get ready thing that Peter keeps doing. Prepare your minds for action. Get ready, he says. It's prophetic. For these guys, it was very prophetic. That They needed help with their present situation, yes, but even more, they needed to prepare for an increased hostility as well. Let's move this 2,000 years into the future and a few thousand miles uh, north, shall we, and see how this lands with us. Now, just to be really clear, I'm not going to make any wild predictions about what's about to happen or in the next 10 or 30 years. I think that'd be silly. And we can't know. We have no idea uh, what's going around the church for the uh, church in the UK, I, I guess. But what we can do is we can plot a certain trajectory that it's wise to take account of. Whether it continues or not, who knows, uh, could change completely. But we can see a trajectory happening, can't we? Is that resonate with anyone? Um, I mean... Hostility towards the Christian church has noticeably increased in the last decade, I think it would be fair to say. And um, still, I guess for us, very, very similar to this letter, the most persecution any of us are likely to get is going to be people speaking badly of us or being socially shunned in some sort of way. That does happen and we can expect that sort of thing. But the tone is very, very different to how it was 20 years ago. And as far as I'm aware, there is no one in our church who has been put in prison or has lost their job because of their faith. 
But I imagine that probably most of us could think, we could join the dots and think, yeah, I know how that could possibly happen, though, if this and this happened and this, and things started moving a little bit more in this direction. Is that, does that, I mean, again, I'm not, just to be clear, I'm not prophesying this is going to happen, but you, you can see that, can't you? Just speak to me, does that make, yeah. make sense? Yeah. Um, we can see that sort of trajectory. And so this is incredibly relevant for us. Now, this passage today, what, what I hope it will do, will equip us for what we face today. That's very important. But all through it, there is this call to get ready for what is around the corner. There is an urgency here. And again, I want to be clear. And this bit is the bit I'm going to have to spend the rest of the time explaining. You might think, OK, then I'm ready. And you're holding on to your seat with white knuckles. OK, oh, no, everything's going wrong. That's probably what's going to happen. And so fear and worry come to us. But that's not what Peter's intention is at all. As as we're going to see, there is a way to see even what I've just said in the worst possible light. And it brings us resolution. It brings us determination. But it also, and I use the word only because Peter uses it, it should bring us joy. And that's, I guess, what we've got to to explain, I suppose. So what else do we find out about this suffering? What do we we see about it? Well, we see two things. Uh, First of all, we see that it's not strange. He's like, it's not strange suffering. If you've got a Bible, chapter 4, verse 12, I think it'll probably be... Oh, there it is. It is there. Um, And it says it quite clearly here. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through. Don't be surprised. Don't think this is an unusual thing. As if something strange were happening to you. No, no. Persecution is not strange, is what Peter's saying. It's important we know this. Because if we think persecution and suffering is strange... And comfortable coexistence with culture is normal, which just so you know, historically and geographically, it is definitely not. Okay, across Christian history, we are the strange ones. Western world at the moment is strange because we don't experience suffering and persecution. But that's easy to say and that's easy to think objectively, I know this. But for most of us, we would have lived in a situation for our entire lives where we have not known persecution. We should thank Jesus for it, but we should also know we are the weirdos here. We're the strange ones. We're the ones who should be surprised by the situation. Suffering for the gospel is not strange. And if we recognise that, what happens is... Well, if we don't recognise that, if we think that comfortable coexistence is normal, suffering is strange, when suffering happens, what a funny thing happens, we freak out and we go, what has gone wrong here? And at the worst, we can just jack our faith in completely. Because we think, well, I didn't sign up for this. But at the best, what we can do is think, what have I done wrong? God must be really displeased with me. I'm at home, I've got no, no work anymore. My job's been taken away from me. What did I do wrong? Um, now, Peter talks a load of, in, this, uh, in this letter about how you shouldn't suffer for being a doofus. Okay, I don't know if you spotted that. It's like, yeah, if you're going to suffer, don't kill people and steal and make trouble. If you suffer for that, I'm not talking about suffering. Okay, And it's possible you could end up suffering as a Christian and you just have to say, I've been a bit of an idiot. Uh, I probably need to stop doing that. And unfortunately, we all do that and some Christians do do that, that sort of thing. He's saying, no, I'm not talking about that. But he's saying, on the whole... If you start suffering as a Christian, probably you've done nothing wrong. Why are you suffering? Well, it's just normal Christianity. It's not strange. That's the first thing we see. But then he moves on a little bit a bit more and it, to say something that really does seem quite odd. He goes on in verse 12. He says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Here's the line. Instead, be very glad. Not just glad, very glad. 
that not just is suffering not strange, it's a blessing for us. How does that work? How does that sit with us? First thing I'd want to do with this, I'd think, yeah, obviously Peter doesn't really know what he's talking about, does he? He's just uh, some guy in his ivory tower who's just like, yeah, he's, he's being a bit glib because he's naive to what suffering is actually like. Is that, is that an option here? I don't, I don't think that's an option. Peter saw Jesus crucified. He took the easy way out, actually. He decided he didn't want to suffer when the slave girl came to him and said, don't you look a bit like that Galilean? You're, aren't you with Jesus? No! And he calls down curses on his head to say, I don't even know the guy. He, he took the coward's way out. He said, I don't want to suffer. But then he watched as Jesus was crucified. And a little while later, when Jesus forgave him and reinstated him and the church started, he saw his friend James uh, murdered by the authorities. Saw his friend Stephen stoned to death in front of him. In fact, when, when James was killed, Herod thought it was such a good idea. So he was so pleased with himself. He thought, ah, this is good. Let's go one better. We'll get Peter. And they arrested Peter and they put him in prison. And the, the, the feel of the passage in Acts is that the very next day they were going to kill him. They were going to execute him. Do you remember what happened? He's still around to write this. So, who, who broke him out? An angel. An angel comes to the prison. It's a great, amazing story. But Peter was that far away from getting executed for his faith. And he saw a number of his friends be executed. This guy's not naive about suffering. We can't go to that as an, as an option. He knew about this situation. Got to understand as well, this whole idea of being very glad in suffering is not just a side point that he kind of makes. It's not like a slip of the tongue that he wished he could have edited it out of the book later. No, this in a way is the main point of the whole letter of 1 Peter. Let's jump to a bit we haven't read. It's chapter 5, verse 12. Spoiler alert. But here he tells us why he wrote the letter. This is what he says. My purpose in writing is to encourage you. And assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace. I don't know if you're like me, but when I think of God's grace, <laughs> I'm thinking of financial provision or uh, protection from harm or getting a new job or something like that. Is that, is that kind of the, the grace category we're in? Okay. Um, what Peter's saying here is, God's grace can come to us just as powerfully in persecution and suffering for the gospel. Now, in this letter, he gives a loads of reasons for this. There's, there's a number more than I'm going to focus on. I just want to focus on, on one reason, okay? And we see it from the, the way he describes these trials. I want to focus on, on this thing. Um, again, questions to the floor, always a risky move. But how does he describe the trials in, in chapter 4? Don't be surprised at the what trials? Fiery, it's fire, okay, the image of fire. Now, if you were around weeks ago, you would have heard when Rich spoke on uh, chapter one, you'd know that this is not the first time he's talked about fire. Now, why is he talking about fiery trials? Well, he's going to talk something of intensity, I, I guess, but there's more going on than that. Let's go to chapter one, six to seven. Um, and again, the words can't behind me or you can flick to them. But you, again, you'll see, he's, I'm not saying he's a one-trick pony exactly, but he's just saying the same thing over and over again. You'll see re um, references all through. Peter says this, chapter one. So be truly glad, he's at it again. Okay, be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while these trials will show that your faith is genuine it is being tested as fire same image tests and purifies gold now as far as i'm aware i am not a metallurgist okay <laughs> but i think what they do is they get some gold which has some other stuff in it 
Okay, I'm clearly not a metallurgist because I don't think it's called stuff in the uh, in the element table of elements. And they burn it, and the other stuff burns off, and you end up with pure gold. Andy, is it? As a layman, is that... Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, so if you're into that sort of stuff, you might be able to fill me in more, but I think that's what goes on. So you end up with this pure gold, okay? And so then he goes on to say... Um, Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, when you find the real gold in it, it will bring you much praise and glory and honour on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Trials, suffering and persecution for Peter are a means by which God purifies us. And particularly that he purifies our faith. So what Peter says is that because that's good, he's like, you want your faith purified, don't you? Therefore, we can be glad when this stuff happens. Make sense? Does it fit together? Is it, is it, logic? Is it logical? Okay. I think it's logical. I think it makes total sense. I find this really difficult. I'll be honest. I think it would be really easy to leave it there and go, right, well, let's pray. We've got it. God's word has spoken. And we'll go, yes. Be very glad in suffering. I don't know. I'm not a big fan of suffering, if I'm being honest. Um, needles, blood, any of that stuff, not liking it at all. Okay. Uh, and even worse, emotional suffering is not something that I, I like at all either. And I'll be honest, as I was writing these very words here, thinking, right, well, <laughs> let's just, we, we've seen what the Bible says. We trust it in faith. Let's move on. This was my thought process. What I thought was this. I'm going to have to stand up in front of the church. In, in a week or two, um, and I'm going to have to say, look, when suffering comes, be very glad. Hmm, what will happen if a couple of weeks around the corner, um, some terrible suffering comes my way, and I come back to King Ed's, or here again if the heating never fixes itself, um, and I, I, someone's heard about it, and they say, Johnny, how are you doing? Won't there be some sort of weird pressure on me to go, you know what, it's great. <laughs> Yay, suffering, little flag. Okay, I mean, I'm not up for that. I don't think I can honestly do that. Um, and I hope I, I hope I don't have to. And even the fact that I hope I don't have to shows I'm struggling with this passage. And uh, I think it's it's good to wrestle with scripture. It's it's helpful to be honest when we stand with with these things. But we also need to be soft-hearted so that scripture shapes us and we don't try to shape it. As well, and I don't think in any way Peter's alluding to something silly like that. He's in no way trying to underplay the pain his readers are feeling. But as I wrestled with this, I realised something came quite clear to me. Peter had a very, very different way of looking at the world than I have a way of looking at the world. We have com almost completely different ways of approaching life in general. I don't think it's just different ways of approaching suffering. I think it's the ways of approaching life. Let's think about this for a second. I, I think in our, let's think of our culture. Let's, let's depersonify it. It's not even right from me, because I, I think this affects me. I wonder if this affects some of us as well. In our culture, the goal of life seems to be reasonably, unanimously decided to be personal happiness. I think that would be everywhere. People, would say, happiness. What do you need to live for? We all live for happiness. Okay. Now, if we take that as the goal, then. Let's work out what are good things and what are bad things in life. Well, then, if that's the goal, good things are things that uh, are going to lead us to contribute to our happiness. That, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. And bad things are going to be things that take away from our happiness. So we'll be thankful and we'll be glad about things that lead to happiness. We will be angry and disappointed and grumpy and moany about things that take away from our happiness. Makes complete sense. The... Problem is, Peter didn't see happiness as the goal of life. 
And so he saw everything completely differently. For Peter, the goal of life is not to be happy. The goal of life is to be holy. He states it over and over again in the letter. The goal of life is not to be happy, it's to be holy. If you were here, last time I, I spoke, I, I spoke about uh, this. And in what, chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, he gives this call to be holy. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy, as the God who chose you is holy. And what he was doing, he wasn't reminding his readers of one of the unfortunate drawbacks of being a Christian. Okay? I think I'm often thinking like this. You get all the Christianity is like this package that comes with lots of pros and a few cons. And you've got to work out, are the cons worth the pros? If so, we go for it. So you say, hmm, Christianity offers me emotional security, a sense of well-being, community. I mean, just look around here. We, we get this best friend in the sky. That's all good, okay? But unfortunately, on the debit column, we have to be holy. Hmm, not so keen on that, but you know what? I like this, so I'll do it, okay? It's a, it's a deal, okay? Peter is not thinking like that. Peter sees holiness as the most important thing in the positive column. It's the most wonderful gift that God can give us as we live it out. Why? Well, because holiness, as I talked about last time, is God's defining characteristic. For God to move us towards holiness is for God to allow us to share in the quality of himself that he is most proud of and the angels in heaven are most impressed by. That's what we see in scripture. God just saying, I'm holy and I'm proud of that. That's the thing about myself I really like. The angels around the throne are not saying, oh, God, you are very clever. We really like that. Or, You're very fast at running. <laughs> They're saying, holy, holy, holy. That's what impresses us. And what Peter saw was that God in his grace says to his people, his children, who could never know anything like that, you can share in that, that characteristic. And these persecutions, these, these sufferings, these trials are then a fire that are sent to burn off our persistent self-centeredness and stupidity so that we can live less like fallen and corrupted and broken people and more like the God in whose image we were originally made. They were a very effective refining agent in that way. Remember what Peter wrote in chapter 4, 1 to 2. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. I think this verse is like a spiritual barometer for us. I'm not going to ask for feedback in a second, but I want to ask a question that I'd like you to ponder. Okay? Let's ignore the first bit, if you have suffered physically for Christ. Let's imagine it's just if you have done X. You've done something. It could be eating a whole bag of popcorn. It could be sitting on the sofa watching Netflix all day. It could be going for a run. Don't care. But if you have done X, this is the result you'll get. Okay? You can do anything, this thing, but this is what will happen to you. If you do X, you will have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires and you'll be anxious to do the will of God. All I want to ask you is, is that an attractive proposal to you? Thumbs up or thumbs down on that one. Again, I'm not going to ask you to respond. I'm, I want in your heart to say, is that the kind of things you think, I want those things? Just to be really clear on this, to the vast majority of people in our culture, that sounds like a living hell. You could say, if, if you get given all of the money in the world and you win the lottery and you have an island in Barbados, but you have those three things, I said, no way, don't want those three things. Could be finished with sin. 
Those things that are the really fun things that I do, the things I cherish in my life, no way. I won't spend the rest of my life chasing my own desires. That's essentially saying that your ambitions and dreams die. Chase your ambitions, go with your dreams. No, you won't spend the rest of your life chasing them. Instead, you will be anxious to do the will of God. I think that we need to be honest about how our culture's view affects us because there's something about those things that don't seem attractive naturally to us. I want to shake you today and say, think about this. God offers us a chance to be done with the ways of living that destroy us, that destroy our friends and families, and destroying our planet around us as we speak. It's finished with sin. God wants to lift us from just living our lives with the feeble things that we crave after. Are you like me? When you do the things that you want to do most, and you get to the end of the day and think... Well, that was a complete waste of time. I feel terrible. I feel empty. That was useless. It just had nothing to it. And that's what I wanted. Here's the good news, guys. God wants to lift you from that, beyond that. And he wants to uh, unite your will, shift your concern so that your desires are brought in tune with the will of the infinite, perfect, benevolent creator of the universe. This isn't a small thing. This isn't a bad thing. This is the most wonderful thing we could ever be offered. And whether you're a Christian here or not, I, I want to put it to you, as Peter would, that it's a wonderful privilege to be offered this. And any cost, almost, that would get us there would be something that we could be joyful about, however hard it would be. It takes some work to clean off the muddy lenses of our childish and unimaginative culture to truly see how good it is. But I think when you do, it's mind-blowing. And when it's, once you see this, I think then we see Peter wasn't joking. He wasn't saying, be very glad, with a wink. No, he's saying, yeah, this stuff, it, it's helpful to remember in all this, that, yes, suffering's not strange, but it can also have been a wonderful means to get us there. But we see one last thing, and I want to close with this. Um, that is very important in all this because Peter's concern is not just then when suffering comes then just put up with just endure get through it with potentially even a smile on your face if that's kind of what he he means he, he's not saying that there's something else here and I think very quickly we can just add this on at the end we've looked at what kind of suffering there'd be but we're asking another question how do we then suffer well how do we suffer well I want to move on to just the last verse I read and this will be the last verse uh, well, the last verse we focus on. This is what Peter writes. So, if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. Notice, Peter doesn't want his readers to just endure suffering. In fact, in some ways, his focus isn't on suffering at all. It's like, you might be thinking today, oh, I haven't suffered very much. I need to find some suffering. Otherwise, I won't be a good Christian. Peter's like, no, no, that's ridiculous. It's not about whether you suffer or not. It's about what you do when you are or are not suffering. And that what we do is summed up, keep on doing what is right. Obviously, an incredibly vague statement. Keep on doing what is right. I mean, you could interpret that any number of ways. Fortunately, Peter interprets this very specifically for us in this whole book. I think the best definition of that is found, as we read it uh, before, in chapter 3, verse 9. What does it mean to keep on doing what is right? This is what it means. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. How do we keep doing good? 
Well, what we do is we respond in both our speech and our action in completely the opposite spirit to that in which we are treated. He says that over and over again in this letter, people slander you. Well, what do you do? Well, you keep your tongues from lies. People make trouble for you. What do you do? You speak well of them. People curse you. You bless them. People threaten you and abuse you and rant at you. Well, you speak and you tweet and you blog and you post with gentleness and respect. If the authorities turn on you, will you submit to them and continue showing respect for them? If people come to us in a spirit of conflict, chapter 3 verse 11 says, we search for peace and work to maintain it. What does all that sound like? Does that remind you of anybody at all? <laughs> at all? I think it sounds to me a lot like Jesus. And it's not an accident. Throughout this letter, he's given us as the model to follow in suffering well. Chapter 2, verse 21 says it most clearly. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example and you must follow in his steps. And once we see that, I think we get the last piece of the puzzle that links everything together, I hope, in, in this message. Persecution and suffering is sent to make us more like God, to share in his holiness in his most defining characteristic. But when we talk of holiness, and I've not defined it at all today really, I think often we just think it's such an abstract concept. What on earth does that mean? Well, as with anything about God, if you're struggling to think what it means about God, we look at when God came to earth as a human and lived among us to show us what those things were. What did it mean for Jesus to be holy? The angels around the throne, they look at the, the Father and they say, Oh, he's holy. That's the thing that defines him. What did people notice about Jesus? They noticed his love. They noticed he taught love and he lived love. But not just love. He would say things like, yeah, but it's fine. Love your friends. Everyone loves your friends. You love your enemies. That's what you do. He thought, yeah, it's fine for you, Jesus, because everything's going well for you. You're this superstar preacher. That's cool. And then things started getting tough and they started thinking, oh, no, he really means it. And he goes to the cross and he dies and he calls for forgiveness from heaven. And you realise, that's what it was. What's holiness for Jesus was love even for his enemies. It wasn't a holier-than-thou moralistic snobbishness. It was grace and mercy for those who didn't deserve it. When persecution comes, the call for us is not to cave in and give up our faith. Yep. That's definitely the case. Please don't cave in and give up your faith. <laughs> no, don't do that. But it's much more than that. The call for us is to keep on doing what is right. And what that means is to show kindness in the face of hostility, patience in the face of anger, love in the face of hatred, and actively bless and work for the good of those who insult and hurt us. And as we do that, in the power of the Spirit, what we'll find we're doing is this that we are walking in the footsteps of our older brother and God is sending those things to us to realise the thing that we have always said that we wanted to do since Sunday school. What do you want to do with your life? How do you want to live? I want to be like Jesus. Anyone ever said that? Jesus' defining characteristic was shown most clearly in hostility towards him. I want to be like Jesus. Would you know what the best platform, the best scene by which that can be seen is suffering? That's where Jesus showed it. This is an opportunity to do the thing we've always wanted to do. And I don't think it's a prospect of fear. I know it's a prospect that can bring fear, but I don't think it's a prospect of fear. 
I need to wrestle with that myself. But I don't think it has to be. Because surely nothing could be better than being like our wonderful saviour, could it? So let's cope with all that's thrown at us today. And let's get ready for all the challenges and opportunities that could be thrown at us tomorrow. But I want to encourage us as we close. We're going to pray in a second. Let's always keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And let's desire above all things to be like him. So that whatever circumstances we go through, we won't judge them according to whether they make us happier, but whether they make us more like him. Okay. Let's, let's close your eyes and, and pray. Anna. Nadine, can you come up here? Is that okay? I've, 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 I've told him this before. I've not sprung it on him. But if you just close your eyes. I, um, I just want to do this. I'm not going to make a big song and dance about it. I, I know this is kind of heavy stuff. Um, I do know, just as I've preached a few times, there is a beauty about this. There's a wonderfulness about this that so flies in the face of, of the shallowness of the world and the goals that we're encouraged to have to waste our lives most successfully. I just want to ask, it could be for any number of reasons, but if you feel the Holy Spirit challenging you today in a way that's more than just, hmm, interesting, uh, I just ask you to stand. Um, we're going to pray for you. I'm going to get Nadine to pray for you, which... I think he might sum up why that's that's relevant on this topic. But I just encourage you, if you feel the Holy Spirit stirring you on this topic, think I need to be robust maybe in this. I, if you're worried and nervous about this particularly, think how could I survive? God wants to give you a robustness.